You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. There's so much talk about green tech, clean tech, and uh, you know, energy tech right now. And you know, we've had so many speakers in here talk about that, not only this quarter, but in past quarters. It, there's an extraordinary opportunity right today to, to meet somebody who's actually been doing this, you know, getting their hands dirty, if you will, uh, by building a plant um, and, and it's in putting it into production, um, and as well as the person who funded them. The other thing that's kind of interesting about today is that we, uh, we never tire of having entrepreneurs and their investors here together. I mean, most of the time we have an entrepreneur, whether they're still running a startup or maybe their startup has become very, very big, and they're here alone, like Cheryl last week uh, from Facebook, uh, or Mary Baker the week before from Play First, uh, or we have the venture capitalists here, you know, and they're here, and so they talk about, you know, how they feel about entrepreneurs. But every once in a while, we've had somebody practicing this at the same time. I, mean, I recall, um, we had Mark Zuckerberg here with his venture capitalist when he first started Facebook, uh, Jim Breyer, and that was a very interesting session. And, and so this has only happened about once a year, so it's uh, something we like to do. Uh, and I uh, am so pleased that you, you came to join us today. So why don't we start off with saying, why don't I start with you, Steve? Tell us a okay. little bit about yourself, you know, rather than me uh, hitting the highlights of your bio. Uh, tell me a little bit about your career and how, you, how we got here today. Sure. Well. Uh Thank you all for, for attending today. I'm really pleased to be here. As Tom mentioned, I'm Steve Paracone, CEO and co-founder of Biofuelbox. Um, prior to that, I had been involved with three other startups with varying degrees of success. So successful IPO, beyond my imagination. Uh, another acquisition, um, which fell below my <laughs> uh, level of expectation. And then a flame out. So I think uh, I've experienced all those things. and. And those sets of experiences certainly have helped us as we move forward with Biofuelbox. Um, my first startup was a company called Network Telesystems, uh, which sold TCP/IP code remote access software back in the dark ages of the, uh, the late 90s. And we OEM'd it to people like Cisco Systems and Citibank and um, others like Netscape when they started. Um, our founder was Dr. John Davidson, and I thought, boy, I could really learn from a guy who had co-founded Ungerman Bass. He was the technical founder of Ungerman Bass, which was a high-flying local area networking company back in the day. And uh, we grew that company for four years. I was a senior exec there. I was VP of Worldwide Sales. Um, grew it to about 45 people, about $15 million in revenue. Um, a large networking company came to acquire us, who shall remain nameless, for about $100 million. And I learned the hard way that when you work for somebody who has no exit strategy or no interest in giving up control, that uh, many times it's difficult to have an exit. So we turned that offer down. Make a long story short, uh, I looked for my next opportunity and I thought, you know, gee, this time around I'm going to go to a VC-funded startup because that means there's an exit strategy in place. And I went to a company called Structured Internetworks where I ran worldwide sales and was interim CEO and uh, learned the hard way that time around that there are good VCs and bad VCs. And we happen to have bad VCs. Meaning that we had a dysfunctional board. Are and you a good VC? I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you 
And dysfunctional board uh, really was not interested and aligned with the, uh, the company or our charter. They were strictly in it for the money, um, and it was just a bad experience. So the, th the third startup, SonicWall, uh, was really a restart of a company that had been failing because their core business was, was dying, uh, Nick Ethernet cards. And we came in, myself and Cisco's first marketing guy as a team, to really help convert that company from a LAN networking card company into uh, the world's first network appliance company, network security appliance. So when, when networking gear or security devices were uh, $100,000 Unix machines that took an army of IT guys, we came out with the first box that cost $500. It was the size of a video cassette. Got laughed at at the first trade show uh, because all the smart people in the industry said it could never work. Well, 10 years later, it's still a profitable company. We grew it to 200, well, 450 people, $200 million in aggregate revenue in a short period of time, profitability, and then an IPO, which uh, uh, is where I learned that the good VCs can really help you because we allowed a VC to invest um, when it was time to come up with an exit strategy. They built a very strong board, and instead of selling the company, which was our, our management team's plan for a relatively small amount of money, um, we ended up uh, IPOing and having a, a high market cap of $3.5 billion. But what I'm most proud of is 10 years later, it's still a profitable company. Um, after taking a short time off, um, co-founded Biofuelbox uh, about three and a half years ago with a couple of my uh, uh, co-founders, or not co-founders, uh, colleagues from previous startups who really are avid environmentalists. We saw an opportunity to start a company in an exciting new industry, not just drive a company forward, but drive an industry forward by applying our experience and entrepreneurial spirit uh, to do some good. Great. I want to talk about uh, Biofuelbox more in a minute, but let's, let's uh, talk about your life real quickly. Gosh, so I, um, I actually attended uh, Georgetown University which, and took a degree in the, the School of Foreign Service. So I had uh, foreign policy uh, deep in my uh, gene set, and most of my classmates went off and joined the Foreign Service. And I wanted to go out and try and make a difference in the world uh, and looked at a bunch of different programs, including the Peace Corps and thought I wasn't quite up for building latrines. I wasn't sure that that would have sort of the leverage effects that I think Cheryl talked about a little bit last, year, last week. And, uh, but I joined a program where I went out to teach and teach young, young folks out in the bush out in, in Kenya. And that was, wow. really, that was really the roots of, 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 of where, I, where I came at is, is, is really at the grassroots level trying to help, help folks, um, in that case out, out in, out in sub-Saharan Africa and came back and then started to get my business education um, through Bain & Company and, and other sources. And I really have been doing venture capital now for about 12 years. I joined, joined DFJ back in 1997. And I came to DFJ through something called the Kaufman Fellowship Program, which was a program to help bring folks who may not have a traditional background into the venture, venture community. And it really was a great opportunity for me to to learn quite a bit about it's still going venture on today. capital. It's still so a program today. Kaufman Fellows Program, right? That's right. So it is a program that you could also uh, look into in your future for those, particularly for those with graduate degrees. You do need a, a graduate degree to apply to the program, and um, and it really was a great great opportunity for me to to build a platform for learning how to be a, how to be an effective venture capitalist, an effective investor, and really help build at the at the build companies from the very beginning. But my interest and my focus has been to be doing early stage investing. And it was really inspired. I, I took a year off of my career to, to work on a political campaign. And, and the gentleman that was running for office was a venture capitalist. 
And on the trail, he would talk a lot about stocking the first shelves at Staples and the excitement and the passion of the entrepreneur and how they thought about trying to build their business from the, really from the ground up. And I was really inspired by those stories. And I thought, well, that seems like a noble task. And that was, that was the inspiration for, for jumping into the business. And, uh, and here I am, 12 years later, still trying to identify great entrepreneurs and help them at the, at the, at the groundswell of the beginning. Um, so just to make it clear here, DFJ is an investor in Biofuel Box. Is it the only investor? So people can sort of understand that. Columba Partners, who's a DFJ affiliate, is also a uh, uh, co-investor along with DFJ. And, and when did that take place? When did you to, uh, when was that official? A couple of years ago? 2007, October 2007. Okay, so we've been an investor for two then. She's on the board as well. So just people understand the context here. So why don't we talk about Biofuel Box? What, sure. is it, what does that mean and what is it? So Biofuel Box, um, was founded to, with, with really two missions in mind. One, to eliminate waste streams, and two, convert it to localized energy. Um, again, founded by avid environmentalists, we were really focused on solving environmental problems, not just making money. But when we took a look at the broad range of things we could do within clean tech, it became clear that, that producing biofuels locally in a box or appliance um, made the most sense um, particularly when we identified you know, billions and billions and billions, over 10 billion gallons worth of waste material in wastewater treatment streams that could be converted into fuel. Went with biodiesel, which we produce with our system, um, because biodiesel doesn't require consumer behavioral change. So when we took a look at what was happening three and a half years ago in the first wave of biofuels companies, they were all focused on converting food materials like soybean oil or corn and ethanol um, we just didn't see that scaling, and we didn't see it scaling for a number of reasons, primarily because there was commodity market risk on the inputs and on the outputs, and there was a potential to get squeezed, which it's proven to, to be true. But in our case, what we did is we, we really just applied basic entrepreneurial and business, sort of what we view common sense, to the problem. You know, where is the, the biggest cost in the, the price of a gallon of fuel? Um, it's the feedstock or the raw material. If you can solve waste problems, can you lock up that raw material for free? Yes, you can. If you can get that for free, can you be the low-cost producer of fuel? Yes, well, you can. Well, that's one of the reasons why the uh, people who care about the environment are upset with the first-generation biofuels companies as well, right? Because it, it cutting exactly. down yeah. rainforest in order to, to grow. And the driving up food prices. Or, yeah. and, and so we're considered really a, a second-use feedstock, uh, whereas the, the fats, oils, and greases that, that we... Um, convert into biodiesel really have no other use. They're being landfilled or incinerated or otherwise disposed of today. So, so are you in the fuel business or in the waste, uh, what I get, like remediation or what would you so call it? So we view it? ourselves really as a wastewater treatment or re remediation company with biofuel or biodiesel as a revenue generating byproduct that we use not only to continue to drive the company forward and give great returns to investors, um, but also to incent those that have those waste streams uh, through a profit share to give us those waste streams, you know, for 10 years. So what attracted DFJ uh, to invest in these folks originally? Or it, so, like, so, DF, so DFJ was, was a very early investor in clean energy, and, and we, we think about clean energy as scarce resources. And so we've looked at a whole host of different areas where we're, we're trying to, to identify how to, to better extend scarce resources. And, and solve some of those problems fundamentally. Um, one of the exciting things that, that we thought about Biofuel Box was really fundamentally about that, 
feedstock and the opportunity to take advantage of eliminating waste um, on a fully distributed localized basis. So waste is expensive to get rid of, it's messy, and it's fundamentally local. It's distributed all over the United States and it's a local business and folks have to figure out hairy ways of trying to get rid of it. And so it was exciting to be able to take what is fundamentally a waste product and a problem and solve it by, by turning it into a, in this case, a scarce resource, which is a fuel, fuel solution. And we had looked at a lot of those first generation solution sets like ethanol and passed on that because it didn't seem to, it seemed to exacerbate the fundamental challenge of scarce resource um, and scarcity versus trying to identify how to solve those problems and, and, and diversify our, our energy uh, inputs. So, so that was a driver. Yeah, go ahead. I'd just like to, to add one thing yeah. to what Jennifer touched on, localized energy production, uh, which I uh, alluded to in the beginning. Um, we've, we've not built large centralized plants. What we've done is we've created a biofuel box. It's actually a set of boxes now that are co-located at the waste stream. So co-located in industrial food locations where they have fats, oils, and greases coming through the wastewater stream or municipalities. Uh, so we localize an energy production. And as uh, part of doing that, not only do we lower the cost, but we also eliminate um, uh, you know, transportation um, issues associated with putting carbon into the air to move liquids around. So do you have one installed anywhere now? Um, we have our first fully scaled plant uh, nearly installed up in Idaho, taking fats, oils, and greases from a, a potato food processing plant and converting it into biodiesel. French fried potatoes? Uh, French fries, hash browns. I remember that in college. Uh, yeah, and it's contaminated <laughs> with things rice. like sand because it's the, the grease that hit the wastewater stream, so it's not I a yellow grease. So it takes that, goes in this collection of boxes, and out comes diesel that just Road runs quality, in. low sulfur, biodiesel. And when that gets up to full production, that, that set of boxes, that plant, if you will, how much diesel will that be? A million be gallons a year per, per set of boxes. So we could scale it up by adding an additional set so, yeah. if the waste streams. I got it. So, but I want to pause on a really yeah. critical point that, that Steve pointed out about this, which is, it is a lo this is a local, taking local waste and turning it into diesel or bio biofuel at a local level. And one of the things many folks don't appreciate about the fuel business is that when you see prices of barrel of oil going up and down, and it's, yeah. it's fundamentally a commodity, um, when you think about it and how they trade futures and all the, all the stuff that they write about in the New York Times. But the challenge is, is that when you're talking about trying to deliver fuel to distributed regional locations, Idaho, right. Colorado, um, New Mexico, there's expensive transportation to bring them from a cheap port like Oakland or LA and getting that into those, those, those communities. And so actually the most expensive gas to deliver is often in some of the more remote and distributed areas of the you know, United States or other parts of the world. And so when you talk about what Biofuel Box is trying to accomplish, where they're taking a local waste stream and eliminating that and then providing the fuel at that lo locale, you're actually eliminating two problems, which is you know, that challenge of bringing in um, an expensive commodity into that region, but also eliminating that local source. And, and the cost effectiveness of that is also the, the, sort of the nice little benefit that comes as a result. Right, and how, how do you make money? So what's the business model? Selling fuel. We're, Selling a fuel fuel. Company. So we're, we're owners and operators of these plants. One of the other things we recognized was that the, uh, the producers of this waste material, you know, to, they didn't want to become a biodiesel company. Uh, they didn't want to have to change. It's not their core business. So 
um, the potato processor didn't want to become a fuel company. Uh, so instead, we just make it easy to say yes. We cover all the capital costs, we staff it, we run it, we sell the fuel, and we simply profit share back. So uh, what's been the biggest challenges so far, though? Uh, some of them. For the, for, for the company, for the, just, just, just in general. I, mean, so, well, I, w I would say in this environment, the macro economy and the conditions that are happening there, um, because we're owners and operators of these plants, you know, bringing in uh, the capital that should, would normally be very straightforward to bring in is more challenging today than it would have been a year ago. And then the technology itself, how's that gone? It's gone extremely yeah. well. We've, we've proven the technology works by taking this this waste material that's high in contaminant, high in water, high in contaminants like sulfur, high in water, high in sand and grit, and convert it into ASTM quality, which is the industry standard quality fuel. Yeah. So, but the, what about this, all I hear about the, about the biofuel industry, that it's just deteriorated, as, as, a, as yeah. and it's not attractive at all. And that, is that all based on this bringing everything to a centralized refinery, using commodity feedstocks, and then getting hurt when the price of oil goes down? Is, that, it, is that why I, I think that's people a, are so down That's a main reason. Yeah. It's not the only reason. I think that, that biofuels in general certainly have taken a hit um, in the investment community and, and sort of in the media in general because they did take that approach of converting pure oils in, or, or food materials into fuel because that was the low-hanging fruit. They had old technology that was 30 years old, and to get to the market quickly, uh, the easiest way to do it was apply big dollars, build big plants, and process food. Uh, another mistake I think they made was they depended too much on consumer behavioral change to drive their business. So in ethanol, it requires a flex fuel vehicle. You know, I don't know how many of you are going to rush out and sell your car so that you could run ethanol, but not, you know, most people really can't. Uh, so um, biodiesel made sense for that reason, especially in the industrial areas. But I think that also slowed the adoption rate of the yeah. fuels that were available. Well, I want to ask Jennifer about uh, sort of DFJ's philosophy about clean tech investing uh, in general, but like maybe one more question for you is, uh, the, so the founders were primarily information technology veterans, mm -hmm. but this is a clean tech company. Right. So how did you make the transition or, or deal with that? Because my goodness, I mean, there's a lot to know about the fuel business. There's a lot to know about the... Yeah. The chemistry of the waste business, I mean, That's how true. do you help you dealt with that to be, you know, to be a, a world-class startup? So, so as I mentioned, this is my fourth startup. Patricia Bright, who's one of my co-founders, this is her fifth startup, and she's had a, uh, a winning experience in every one, which is unique uh, to itself. Um, and John Zamek, it's his fifth startup. He was our other co-founder. Um, we really had a, a collective set of, of entrepreneurial skills and experience and, and really just applied it to this space. And I think one of the things uh, that we knew from experience is really identify you know, the model that works, build a business around it, and then recruit in the pieces of technology that you need. So if we were back in the IT space, we'd be looking for software and hardware engineers. In this space, we searched for those chemists that had experience with biofuels and then those chemical process engineers that once we had a research team develop the core technology, um, we could then scale it. So we brought in a team of, of people from Clorox. That uh, Mark Privatera, VP of Engineering, had been at Clorox for 20 years as the guy driving those types of projects. So I think a big part of it is, is applying um, the experience you've, you've learned to build a strong team 
and understand the areas that you continue. And look for the domain uh, expertise. Like, domain did you get anybody in the fuel business? And we did. In fact, um, from the fuel business, I should say. Yep. We recently we actually brought in a VP uh, who came from BP North America. Mm -hmm who's driving our fuel sales strategy on the back end. So we didn't need that skill set until recently we were about ready to produce fuel. Right. Um, but we, rather than try and learn a skill set and build a, build a Rolodex um, in that area, we went and recruited an expert. Well, why don't we enlarge this a little bit and use the, the GFJ's view of the world. Are you guys still uh, bullish about clean tech investing? Yeah, so... Even after what has happened in the... You know, macro economy. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we are early stage investors, and we do focus on opportunities and that are at the early stage, which tend to have a little bit more, uh, a little less volatility about what's happening in macroeconomic conditions. In addition, we have uh, our network itself is actually spread across the world, so we are looking at energy opportunities and clean energy opportunities here in the United States, but also in India and China, Israel, Russia, you know, Europe, Europe, and um, in other areas as well. We have a fund in Vietnam and Korea. So we are very broadly based and we are not the only country in the world that is trying to identify how to achieve energy independence and or reduce uh, the countries, their respective countries' dependency on, on fuel and, and fossil fuels in particular. But also other scarce resources like water um, as well and how to expand food challenges when you have land scarce resources. So we, we, we look at the challenge quite broadly and we're looking at opportunities across the, across the globe. And, um, and we're seeing an incredibly strong um, surge of interest on the entrepreneurial level. And that's fostered by universities like Stanford and other parts of the world and some really exciting discoveries around materials, new materials, genetics. Genomics has been a very important factor and will continue to be an important factor in a lot of the discoveries that we'll see, um, particularly for remediation with bacteria and, and solving some of the water problems and, 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 and even uh, food problems that we may see as well. So we, we see this, we, we see some, some clusters effects there. There's also a strong political will that, that is really unprecedented. Mm -hmm both with the administration that we see today, but also in, in administrations in, across, across the globe. China's made a huge commitment uh, to, to trying to identify alternative sources. And, it, and the reason they're doing it isn't just out of uh, the kindness of their hearts, but recognizing that, that there is a fundamental national security risk that has emerged um, that, that is now no longer an acceptable, acceptable risk for these nation states. And that's really a fundamental difference that we think will continue to be an important factor here. And you're going to see issues around the commodity and commoditization of, of fuels when you look at oil. That, that, is, that is a supply and demand challenge that will continue. It's not going to go away. You're going to continue to have oil be a factor. But the interest here is to try and diversify our sources of energy and to diversify away from the existing solution sets and so that there are better choices to match up to a, to a given solution. But does oil have to be expensive for your ventures such as biofuel box to succeed? Right, so that's where the, the diversification of, of, our, of how we define clean energy as a scarce resource problem. In the case of Biofuelbox in particular, what we, one of the attractive aspects of their economics model is the capacity to be profitable down at $30 a barrel, um, which, which we think fundamentally is where if you're playing directly, directly versus an oil play, you need to be thinking about you're building your business model without, without uh, government stimulus and government credits, 
where you can build a sustainable model that lives within the volatility of that framework. But there are other, other opportunities as well, renewables that we're investing in other spaces um, uh, in trying to, to build uh, utility capacity around solar, for right. example, or in wind, which is another area that we've invested in, where in the case of solar, for example, we have one company that has $7 billion of backlog of booked orders. Which one is that? It's, a, it's called BrightSource. It was Bright actually yeah, yeah. founded originally. It was a company out of Israel and took advantage right. of, of the, that remote location and, and the sun to build out their control systems for capturing and, and uh, capturing energy and, and just converting it into steam. And they have uh, seven billion backlog with companies like PG&E and others around the, around the globe. And you're also investors in Tesla, I think, right? Like, like We've had made investments recall. through ourselves and through through um, through our partners in three electric car companies, going both at the very high end with companies like Tesla, which is a local company that many of you know, which is fundamentally changing how we think about electric cars and the economics around electric cars. It's also changing the way we think about dealership and distribution yeah. of cars, which was one of the very interesting aspects of that business model. And then we went after the low end with a company called Reva, which is actually based in India, but can build cars, it's reduced the number of parts in a car so that you can build a car much less expensively without the, the significant years of retooling that they ship all over the world, particularly in Europe. So, so there's a lot of different ways of to skin, skin the cat. Sector. Well, that's the excitement about it is there's just so many different opportunities that, that if you let me, I can go on all night. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Tim, you know, and we had Tim uh, Draper, your partner, in ETL last quarter, and he, he alluded to it as well that this was a great time to be a, a clean or green tech entrepreneur. I mean, so you feel the same way? I think it's it, you're looking at some fundamental shifts. There hasn't been a, a fundamental change in the underlying technology for fuel in, in 50 to 100 years, depending upon which segment you're looking at. And so some of the fundamental shifts around materials and genomics is changing that. Some of the most exciting life science companies are selling, developing energy solutions. Right. Um, companies that are so it's morphing together. The sectors are morphing together. That's right. And so you, you, you have, you, you have that, that blending where the, some, of the largest, some of the largest customers for these life science companies are actually energy companies. Do you have a company with a vaccine for the swine flu? Working on it. <laughs> Working on it. If anybody in here is not feeling well, you can leave any time you like. Oh, no, not you, Steve. Poor Steve has a cold today. Just a cold, we promise. Thank you, Steve, for showing up as well. Steve's been under the weather. But... Um, so Jennifer, uh, how is it different to, to I mean, since you, you've, you've been on the board and, and done investments in digital companies, you know, all the you know, IT companies and medical companies, because you've done some wonderful work there and, and now a growing practice, if you will, in, in clean tech. So uh, what's different on, about them? Do they have any, or, uh, you know, is there any way to differentiate them in your mind in terms of, or is it just that the, the common principles of entrepreneurship are the same? It's just different business models or something. In many ways, it's the same. And in many ways, they're wildly different. So it, it, it's obviously the devil's in the details. Certainly, for, for starting a young company, it really is about a, a tremendous team. And we, we back great entrepreneurial teams and diverse teams. So uh, there's nothing worse than assembling a team where everybody has the same background and it looks the same and smells the same. It's just it, it tends not to work as well. So. At the core of every investment that we do, it, it's always about the great teams. But there are differences. There's different differences in the time cycle to get to a product, to build a company. At the end of the day, when you think about venture capital, you're thinking about building businesses. And while great teams and great products and great uh, emerging markets all coalesce to build those great companies, at the end of the day, you still have to build great companies. So there, you have to make sure that the business model works, that there's distribution mm -hmm. channels. and so. 
Um, those are all quite different in many of those, those examples. So in medical devices, you may have an FDA process where you have, have to go through and, um, and you may have different amounts of capital required before you actually get a product to market. Right. Um, in clean energy, we have companies that could be very capital efficient, particularly in areas like lighting, um, where you're, the whole notion of how we, you can reduce your energy demand um, by 40 to 60 percent by how you think about managing your lighting systems. And that's a very important emerging theme that is very capital efficient. Yeah. Uh, but then you may have going after renewables like this company I described, um, BrightSource, which is seven billion of backlog, but the capital required to build out those facilities is anywhere from 500 million to a billion dollars to build those out, just like it would be to build out a utility level right. um, coal, coal so or. Um, so I forgot to ask. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, didn't interrupt. I forgot to ask when she was talking about the clean tech investing. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any lack of enthusiasm? Um, um, other than the, the sort of being locked up with the yeah. economy, but in I, general. I think it's a two-part question, yeah. right? Um, I think it's, is there a lack of enthusiasm? Absolutely not. You know, I attend conferences, talk to venture capitalists and other types of investors all the time, and there's a very high level of enthusiasm for clean tech. Yeah. The, the second thing is, are people actively investing outside of their own funds right now? And I think because of the macro economy, things had slowed. And I don't think that's a secret. Jennifer can talk about that a little bit more. But um, has nothing to do with really the sector. There are some investments being made, but not nearly at the pace as it would be or will be once things recover. So just to, to finish out on the point, yeah. the, the point about the, the differences is, yeah, you know, Sheryl Sandberg was here last week talking right. about Facebook and how they surpassed 200 million users. Um, in, in their platform, and how you scale this, these businesses is dramatically different. So how you scale a Facebook and how you, you attract users and, and distribute your product right, is so right. dramatically different than Biofuelbox, which is fundamentally about establishing local relationships that may not extend beyond 50 kilometers from where they put down their plant, where they're getting their waste product in and they're putting their biofuel, they're putting their biofuel out. It's a 50-kilometer problem versus Facebook, which is, can be a worldwide platform. And how, both can be wildly successful businesses, but but how you think about scale uh, in those different those different types of companies is, is can be night and day. Yes. All right. So, should we talk a little bit about some micro issues of uh, the relationship between the entrepreneur and the, the VC? Sure, if you like. <laughs> you up for it, Jen? Uh, you know, I I just I should say I just did my nails, but I didn't. <laughs> So get, get my uh, boxing gloves on. Let's approach it this way. Why don't we start with uh, just the fundamental decision sure. um, that you made, uh, your team made to to uh, to search for and and choose uh, venture capital as a source of capital, as sure. opposed to bootstrapping or development projects yeah. or uh, so, other sources. So, what are the pros and cons of that? Well, what, at least in the biofuel box story two years ago. Sure. Well, I think, you know, I mentioned my Take background. I've sort of had a variety of experiences uh, growing companies from the bootstrap, the very first one, and, and uh, understanding the benefits and the drawbacks to that, even though we were profitable and eventually sold the company, um, uh, to bringing in outside venture capital and the benefits there. And I think, you know, it really depends on what the entrepreneur is trying to accomplish. If you're if you're just trying to build, uh, solve a particular problem, build a company that you want to control and run for a decade or more on your own, there's a lot of different avenues uh, to fund that company, including bootstrapping it yourself. I think, though, when you, when you take a look at what it takes, at least in my experience, 
to build a successful company, when you really identify an opportunity, it's about speed. And I think when you, when you look at speed, time to market, you think of New York, you think finance, you think of Texas, you think oil, you think Silicon Valley, it's about speed. And so therefore, that's what I've sort of had embedded into my DNA. And, and to that end, we looked at more than just the money when it became time to get outside investors. We self-funded the company for a year and a half till we had a working prototype. So we're in a pretty good position in 2007 to raise the $9 million. So it wasn't about raising the money. It was really about selecting the right partner for us, I think, in a few key areas. One that would add credibility to us, because as a startup, one of the toughest things to get is credibility. So if you can partner with those that can assist you in that area, like DFJ and, and Element Partners, that really accelerates your growth. And I'll give you an example of that. As soon as we closed our round at the very first board meeting, um, Jennifer and John Rockwell, our other board members, said, go out right now and get a growth line from Silicon Valley Bank. You might need it to extend your runway later. What's a growth line? It's a... Uh, it's a credit vehicle that allows us to draw down additional capital should we need it. And sure enough, uh, based on the reputation of the two investors, in addition to what we were doing, uh, we were able to achieve that, that line of credit. And we would have arguably never been able to do it that quickly or that easily on our own. I think the second thing that, uh, to consider is uh, relationships. So we were new to the clean tech space. Um, and we didn't have a lot of the relationships in this area that, that Element Partners, who's been investing in clean tech since before it was called clean tech, and Jennifer has, um, through their sets of experiences across a wide variety of clean tech companies. So we're able to get introduced to people and get invited to speak at events and become thought leaders and things like that because of the value that, that those types of partners can bring to us. And then I think that the next thing is building a strong board. So I mentioned my second company, I had a dysfunctional board and it killed the company. I think um, one of the biggest strengths we have at Biofuelbox is an extraordinarily uh, gifted set of board members, um, such as Tom, Jennifer, and John Rockwell, that, that really passionately believe in what we're trying to accomplish and, and give us great advice. And as Jennifer knows, it's not always the, the message that I want to hear when she's giving me advice, but you know what? When I sit back and absorb it, it's usually you know, exactly what I needed to hear to move the company forward. So there's a ton of value besides the money that venture capitalists, so long story short, we want venture capital this time around uh, being extraordinarily selective as to which partner we went with um, because they had a lot more value than just money. And I think the, the other thing is clearly uh, additional capital. So, you know, we go out for our next round of funding. Do we have uh, people around the table that are willing to invest in the next round? And if you go with a uh, venture capital firm, normally the answer is yes. So, so you, how many boards do you sit on right now, actively? I'm here? currently on nine boards. Nine boards? Yes. So let's We're her little, favorite. So, yeah. Of course. <laughs> so let's do a little bit of uh, pattern recognition here. So what kind of, uh, what makes for an effective relationship with those CEOs, those nine different CEOs, for you as the, the investor board member? <laughs> when it's working well, why? You know, right, what, what's, right. what's going on? Right, so it, it, is both a, it is both a direct relationship and a community relationship because you have a direct relationship with the CEO as well as a community relationship with the board. And so I, I do want to underscore Steve's point that <clears throat> having, having an effective group of people around the table grappling with issues, because one of the things that often gets lost is that it's really hard to build companies. Things do not work the way you think they will work. They do not work within the time frame you will work. But most of the companies that, that have blown up that we've seen 
have blown up typically because there's internal fighting. The amount of internal fighting amongst whether it's the founders or key members of the team um, ends up sucking an enormous, sucks the lifeblood out of companies sometimes. And so when you have this very strong and honest communication between the CEO and then within that community within the within the board, that that that's that's a that helps carry through a lot of the ups and downs that that drive um, that that is inherent in the volatility of a startup. So I'm out. I don't mean to get so uh, tactical here, or you know, just down to the level of. of uh the mechanics of all this, but I get to ask this a good bit. So, how often are the board meetings for monthly? For the monthly, and is that typical for your other companies, or it depends on their stage? Yes. Yeah, so, you, when you speak about nine, you think, "Ooh, how 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 can you manage all that?" And the challenge, of course, the issue, of course, is that those companies are in different sectors, and those companies yeah. are at different stages. And so, we do have initially companies spend where we spend board meetings monthly, and we're often dealing with a lot of strategic issues as well as personnel issues and hiring issues at that at that juncture. But as companies get larger, they could meet every six weeks, every eight weeks, even quarterly right. in some cases. Um, so why don't we, before we open up the Q and A, how about this as a wrap up? Uh, put yourself back in their shoes. I'm talking about some of the you know the students here, the undergrads and the grads. You know, Chico State or back at Georgetown, and um, if you had a chance to talk to yourself at the time, give yourself a piece of advice. As our colleague wrote in her book, "What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20." So <laughs> I'll get you a chance to I put an that. addendum on Tina Seelig's book. So, what advice do you have? Because you know, people are here by uh, choice. You know, the students are here by choice because they are interested in entrepreneurship. Uh, do you have uh, any? Uh, wisdom to pass along, uh, based on your career or based on what's going on now. Or well, you know, like I, I think the, the biggest piece of advice I've got is is uh, you can't succeed as an entrepreneur unless you're passionate about what you're doing. So, don't even attempt to start a company unless you really believe in its mission and objective and, and what it's trying to accomplish. And hopefully, that aligns with you know your personal beliefs. I think the second thing is have fun along the way. This is a wild wild roller coaster ride every time. And if you're not having fun, and, and I, I like to, to use the analogy, you know, standing on the, the top of a pole 300 feet in the air, just look around, don't look down. You know, if you're walking a tightrope, don't look down, just look at the, the end game because uh, there are plenty of problems. And surround yourself with good people, not, you know, a great team. What did Jensen say a few weeks ago? Startups are the definition of a startup is a company constantly going out of business. Is that what he said? <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> what about you, Jim? So, uh, definitely the notion of passion and, and the importance of passion in your life, whatever you choose to do, whether it's about entrepreneurship, don't get bogged down in career building. Um, I think that's, that, that's, trying to build a career is a misnomer. What you're trying to do is figure out what gets you excited and gets you passionate, gets you going in the morning. And don't be afraid to take the leap but then don't take yourself too seriously if it doesn't, doesn't quite work the way you want it. One of the things I liked about Cheryl's comment last, last week was be a player, not a victim. And you know, it's about the folks that are, that are in the game, that are ready to make mistakes, that are ready to take responsibility and jump in the game versus the, the blame game and, it's, and pointing the fingers and looking around and, and everything's external. Uh, it, it, it's about you and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be passionate and you're going to be excited and you're going to have to take that leap. And I think it's probably fairly well known in this community, although it's not as well known in others, but they, they say that the optimal age for starting a business is actually 28 because you have 
just enough experience to to really be able to think so about how to how build it. Work. That's how he was up there in the head. It's all—it can be a mental thing, but 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 not necessarily enough to know that you you can't you don't have the the baggage of being older and, and feeling like all the things right. that, that could go wrong. You you have the, you, you think about the world and, and how things could go right, and so uh, I encourage you to think of life as an adventure and um, and get find what you're passionate about, whatever that may be. Well, when I think passion and adventure and biofuel box, let, let's just see the prototype last summer where the engineering team went with it to test it out. What was the temperature in Arkansas? 105 to 110 and about 99% humidity. Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Temperature it was, was ridiculous. Humidity of what? Probably 90 plus. And 95. they were there for a month in August yep. in Arkansas. Not a place you necessarily want a vacation. Right, no. All right, <laughs> and then, so that's the prototype. And then this production unit in Idaho, what's been the average temperature up there? Well, in the winter, minus four. So it's been stress tests. So I'd say that's passion. And that's adventure. passion. <laughs> and the people that have joined us, you know, why would you leave a 20-year career at a Fortune 500 company? Because they're passionate about what we're doing. And that's what that drives them. It, it's certainly a lot riskier than a Fortune 500 job you've been at for, for 20 years. Uh, you do it because you believe in, in the cause. There's got to be some feedstock in Hawaii. There's just got to be. Yeah. Maybe someday. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> Last word before we open up? Okay, let's do some Q&A. Just uh, raise your hand and I'll uh, repeat the question. How about right here? Uh, this is for Jennifer. What are the top two worst traits you have seen in startups you have been talked to a lot of them? Could you repeat the question? Sure. So the question was, what are the top two traits that I've seen in the worst CEOs? And if I could, I'll extend that to CEOs or founders because the, the founders are, are fundamental to the game. Um, I think the number one is uh, the belief set that they are invincible and that they don't that they know everything. Uh, that is a, that I've seen that quite a bit, um, and it happens both it happens with technical folks and it happens with business folks. They don't really appreciate all the different dimensions that it takes to build a business, and that the skill sets around the table don't have to be just a technical skill set. And does the technical skill set extend to how you think about managing the finances or managing uh, market development. That is, a, that is a fundamental challenge, is recognizing that, that you need to do that. And then the second, uh, second which, is, which is linked to that, which is hiring well. And you have to be pretty self-aware of what you're good at and what you're not good at to be able to hire well. And so the folks that don't do well, I think, tend to hire people that look like them, have a similar background to them, or a similar mindset to them. And there's a lot of work today um, in the education circles about a closed mindset versus an open mindset. And, uh, and, and typically you find people with a closed mindset blame a lot of other people, hire people that look like them, don't understand or appreciate folks with different backgrounds, and they don't hire well. And people with an open mindset can adapt to, to different folks and seek them out. You're nodding your head. No, I, I completely agree with what Jennifer's saying. And I'm reminded of the fact that you know I have a a wonderful wife and two very strong young teenage daughters that remind me every day I'm not even the smartest guy in the house, not only the, <laughs> the smartest guy in the company. So I think, you know, always trying to improve yourself when you're hiring is really what you're trying to do, improve the company. And, it, you know, it's cliche, but I mean, the team is what makes the company uh, succeed, not any individual. I like to say we build companies that were if any single individual left tomorrow, we'd still be strong. 
And what, one other thing I'll just throw in here, because it hasn't been explicitly said, is that VCs can help, but at the end of the day, CEOs run the companies. They hire and fire the founders, the employees. They make the choices about which customers to go to. The venture capitalists are a resource. And our goal is to help, but if, if, we're, if, if anyone can, perceives that we're in any way trying to make a decision on behalf of the company itself, running that company, hiring an employee, we don't do that. Yeah. And uh, CEOs need to take that leadership themselves. Question right here. Um, I have a question on the metrics of the company. You mentioned $30 a barrel. How much volume is actually coming in? How much volume of fuel is going out? And what's the cost of processing? In other words, You've got a capital cost for the plant, sure. and then you have an operating cost for the plant, and then it sounds like you're getting your material for free, but then you have to return a percentage of the fuel. So, when this so, so the question is about the economics of, yeah. of a question single the, plant. The economics of yeah. a single plant. Right. So um, allow me to answer this, if you don't mind. I, because I, I'm not going to be Please. able to answer it in, in this open forum that's being podcast everywhere. Uh, a lot of it's proprietary. Um, but I can tell you this, since day one, as Jennifer mentioned, our our objective was to uh, be price competitive with petroleum diesel fuel at $30 a barrel equivalent. Now we've done the, the you know, market analysis of the historical pricing, inflation adjusted of, of crude oil for the last 40 years, it's $35 a barrel. For the last 100 years, it's $20 a barrel. So we targeted $30 a barrel because we believe that long term, you know, can you depend on mandates to drive your company and keep it successful? And and those are tax incentives no, ta from the government. Tax incentives or requirements right. to use the fuel? No, but you can always sell the low-priced fuel if it's equivalent to what's being sold. So you know, we target being a nickel less than petroleum diesel over time. And so, if you run the math, you know, we're we're very profitable at sub two dollar uh, a gallon fuel, and that's about as specific as I'd be willing to get here. So can you give me some sense of the operating expenditures in the sense of, like, is it, uh, in a, say, diagnostics business, a very profitable company with 89%, um, if, if you're making lots of small diagnostic tests, yeah. you'd be... So, what, so I guess the question is, what do the yields how, how need profit, to be yeah, to, sure. to, to so, make it work? So um, how hard are you working for profit, I guess? Yeah. Right. Um, it, it depends on the price of fuel. Uh, because the, the price of the input's fixed, the price of the operating cost is pretty fixed, and so it, it really rides with the uh, sale of fuel. So, um, but as I say, we're, we're very comfortable and nicely profitable at, at uh, you know, current prices and can be profitable and in business. The, the day this plant ships its first gallon of fuel, it will be profitable and at a nice rate, and that's about as specific as I'm willing to get. Sorry. All right, let's do some more questions right here. Uh, just touch a little bit back on the idea of good building a team. Um, so Jennifer, you had mentioned that it's very important to have a sense of community and an open um, form of communication. And uh, you had mentioned that um, uh, it's also important to have the people who are the best in a, in a technical field. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on how to navigate that trade-off. Uh, do you go into business with people you really trust and are very close to you, or do you go into business with people who have every single uh, technical skill that is needed to get the company off the ground. Can you attempt to repeat that question? No, I like it. All right, it's let me see one, if I can ask. <laughs> let me see if I can repeat that. So the question is, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, do you do you go into a company? Do you do you go into starting a company or building a company or investing in a company where uh, the technical team is fully in place with all of the technical skills required, um, or not? Is that 
Did I capture that? Right, yeah, and well, like, sometimes you have to balance having the people with those skills, or even, maybe if they're not technical, technical skills even, it could be the, the like the CFO might be real, a really good CFO, it might just be a person who you don't like very much, or you, right. I don't know, even like you. Right, yeah. sure, sure, sure. So, uh, so, so I guess a secondary piece of that is, is whether they, that person is also someone that you can get along with and work well yeah. with, and how closely yeah. do you know them? And so I think it, each each story is different. You're you are you're not going to. No company starts with every skill set in place, and they and not many people I know have really close friendships with with the broad base of skills of everything you would need for a company. It's just a, that type of relationship doesn't typically exist. It certainly helps if you've been through several startups because you can start to pick and choose from some of those organizations. Um, and that helps and you can learn about people through the relationships in this sort of in the Kevin Bacon second and third order type of relationships. Um, that can help support that. But you just, you just don't have that, that luxury in, in most cases. And as venture capitalists, we don't require everything to be in place. In fact, it, it almost never is. It's typically two or three folks in an idea, perhaps a prototype, proof of concept. And the company building exercise is, is bringing in folks that have both the, 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 the diversity of skill sets as well as the, um, the person, per, personal relationships that they can build that may not necessarily be in place at the beginning. So, um, so that is, that is the, the, the fragility of any organization is getting that formula right. Excellent. Right over here. Um, can you comment on the robot strategy for BioRobots and the exit strategy you might have? Sure. Oh, repeat it. Uh, repeat the question. Uh, so the, the question was, um, could I comment on the rollout strategy and the exit strategy of BioFuelBox? Um, the rollout strategy is, is fairly straightforward, which is team with those partners that preferably have multiple sites. So you look at uh, industrial food processors, animal renderers, um, you know, they, most of the big ones have multiple sites. So we look to do, like at SonicWall, we didn't sell one firewall, we looked to sell 100. Biofuel box, we don't look to necessarily install one plant. We look to solve problems across a, a network of plants. Um, and to that end, we are actually teaming with leaders in the wastewater treatment area that already have these relationships because we've identified our businesses as being uh, most attractive uh, when we're dealing with waste streams that are coming through wastewater treatment streams. So who knows where those bones are buried and in the proper quantities? the folks that have been selling to those guys for 20 years. It's a very relationship-driven business. So we're teaming in that space, which is why we now think of ourselves as a waste remediation company. So that's, that's really our go-to-market there. And then, we, uh, and then they have reps and consultants and all kinds of folks that we're building that network's worth of expertise with. Um, and then we're, uh, you know, from an exit strategy, um, when we hit our milestones and we're, we're uh, achieving our objectives, and the IPO market someday recovers, certainly we'll be in a great position as an IPO, but also um, when you think of us and you think of the biofuels market, you know, not so attractive as, a, uh, as an acquisition target as a biofuels company, but arguably very attractive potentially over time as a wastewater treatment bolt-on because we're now generating recurring revenue in an industry where we've captured the channel's attention and the customer base's attention um, and it's an easy add-on for those leaders that are selling capital equipment. Yeah, they aren't building a whole lot more wastewater treatment plants from scratch, but they're always adding on. So, Jennifer, you might want to comment on that. 
IPO. IPO. <laughs> Remember those? Hey, it was good to me. Yeah, you know, I know everyone <laughs> thinks, well, when, I know it feels so foreign, but I still believe that that opportunity will still be there for us in a few years. Yep. So I got a question. Just came up to mind. How is this? It goes back to when you talked about the uh, uh, the attitudes in Washington, as well as other capitals around the world that were, in, in general, they're it, uh, it leads to favorable conditions. And in fact, there's this massive uh, amount of spending that's going up in science and technology, as well as the sort of formal aspects of the stimulus package. What does this really mean for a startup? I mean, how does it filter, how does it trickle or filter down, or what does this mean for something, somebody like Biofuelbox or some of your other investments? How are they reacting to, to this, this stimulus that's supposedly coming from D.C.? Free money? So I was in D.C. about three weeks ago with my empty bucket knocking on all the doors, and nobody filled it. Sandwich board on. Yeah, I think uh, at least from a Biofuelbox perspective, and Jennifer can, can comment on clean tech in general, yeah, we're certainly pursuing the stimulus money and, and all this uh, free money that's becoming available. Uh, in our case, in our industry, um, there's a lot of confusion around biofuels because of the fact that uh, you know the big guys focused on food, uh, as an input, and there are, you know, 80% of the biodiesel folks are mothballed right now, and the uh, DOE hasn't been recently educated as to, you know, waste to fuel plays, particularly at a regional level. So it's, uh, it's this catch-22 where money's coming, but nobody knows who's going to be on the receiving end yet because the definitions are still being debated. So it'll be interesting to see how the definitions of who's eligible. Is it going to be giant plants only? Are they going to allow you know, uh, companies that have distributed models. Um, and so we're dealing with a lot of lobbyists getting their opinions, a lot of attorneys in D.C. getting their opinions. Uh, but in biofuels in particular, there's a little bit of uh, uncertainty around the execution of, of that. So I think there's both federal capital, and then there's state capital, and then there's state mandates, and then ultimately someday there'll be federal mandates that are driving the debate and the opportunity set here. So for a company like Biofuelbox, which is a, a relatively unknown company, they are best served by pursuing both state and federal level opportunities, number one. And number two, they are best served by partnering with their customers or feedstock suppliers to come together as a consortium to reach out for stimulus money. So there's, it, the stimulus money is looking to, get, looking to be leveraged money. They don't want to just give it to $1 equals $1 equals maybe a quarter of a job. They want it, you know, $1 to equal $4, which could equal four jobs. And so they're looking for consortiums and opportunities for customers and, and the full supply chain to come together and present a proposal for why, if they get this money, they will be able to provide significant leverage into that local economy uh, in order to, to justify that, those stimulus dollars. And so we've encouraged our companies like Biofuelbox to have conversations with potential customers, potential um, partners along the feedstock side, to bring together bulk and provide uh, an obvious path for, for legislators to feel as if they are using the taxpayers' dollars to the most leveraged and most effective um, outcome. All right. Well, let me start by saying, please tell your partners at DFJ. We so much appreciate the support for underwriting this series. Uh, it's been another great year. We only have four more sessions to go um, in the school year with Steve Ballmer, of all people, uh, next week, as you heard. Uh, tickets, right, outside uh, will be available. Um, 
And um, and then to you, Steve, I, I know you're under the weather, so thank you so much for joining us as well and, and coming and spreading your wisdom. Uh, let me give him a round of applause and we got something for him. the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.